Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, former BB&T CEO John Allison argues that altruism gave us the financial crisis. Cato's Michael Cannon evaluates the Oregon health insurance experiment. Author Paul Pilar talks about the mythology of intelligence. Author Richard Brookheiser assesses James Madison. And Louis Lehrman talks monetary policy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. For many of us who are libertarians, the question is, is often asked, why are you a libertarian? And inevitably, it is something you've been exposed to in the past, an idea typically expressed through a magazine article or a book or a speech that was given. And I'm happy to say that the Cato Institute has just launched a, an important project, an ambitious project called libertarianism.org. And uh, it is headed by Aaron Ross Powell. He's the editor of libertarianism.org. I'm talking with him and David Bose, executive vice president at the Cato Institute about the project, how it came to be, and sort of uh, its purpose. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, Aaron, what is the idea behind libertarianism.org? What is its aim? Its aim is to give us a way to explore the ideas that are kind of fundamental to the policy that Cato deals with. So when Cato scholars discuss different policy areas, there are these ideas underneath those that are informing where we're coming from. And libertarianism.org is a way for us to talk about those ideas, promote those ideas, put them out in the open. Now, David Bowes, when I years ago saw the website libertarianism.org, it was playing home to your book, Libertarianism, a Primer. And years later, that you wanted to turn that website into something more. Well, that's right. We got it back in 1997 as a site for my book. That was fine for a year or two, but then obviously it fell kind of fallow, didn't get a lot of traction. And over the years, I've often thought we ought to do something with this site. That's a good name for a site, libertarianism.org. We ought to do something with it. Then a couple of years ago, an old friend of mine walked into Cato, Jim Turney, who used to go to every libertarian conference in America, from a Cato Institute summer seminar to the Tennessee Libertarian Party Convention, and audio and videotape everything. He did this professionally at trade association conferences, and his avocation was doing it for libertarians. So he came in and he said, I have thousands of tapes, mostly from the 70s and 80s, and they're in a warehouse, and tapes don't last forever. We ought to get them digitized and do something with them. And we said, that sounds like a great idea. And you know what? We have a website just sitting there that would be the right place to put them. So let's do that. And so the first thing we did was ask him, what do you have? And that turned out to be a pretty big indexing job. And he came back with a list of 6,000 tapes. We were overwhelmed, but we started going through it, and there's Hayek, and there's Milton Friedman, and there's Murray Rothbard, and there's Roy Childs, and Joan Kennedy Taylor, and I can't remember all the people. And we said, this is great stuff, and so we ought to get some of them digitized, and we ought to create a site. And just looking over the list, you know, it really was like 
he had kept a record of the movement for smaller government in the United States in the 70s and 80s. He had explicitly libertarian things like the Libertarian Party and Cato conferences. He had normal conferences on drug reform. He had conferences on privatizing space exploration. He had some conservative conferences, so a whole wide range of things. The particularly libertarian ones, that's what we were most interested in. So we created this site and we asked Aaron what else would you do with this site? And he came up with a great model for what else to put on this site. Yeah. So we had this big batch of tapes and it seemed like we could put those out there, but it gave us an opportunity to do a lot more as well. And so the idea was then to have those, but also to put together more introductory materials for people who are brand new to libertarianism or have maybe heard a little bit about it and are somewhat intrigued so they can come to the site, learn more, and then also as a way for us to gather other stuff that Cato has done and other essays and documents that either haven't been available or haven't been gathered in one place. So we kind of use the seed of these videos to organize this whole structure of libertarianism broadly. What are some of the essays that people will find there? Well, we have selections from the greats. We have selections from Locke and Adam Smith and Hume. We have essays from Robert Nozick on why intellectuals oppose capitalism. We have a lot of things from Cato people that have been published in various Cato publications over the years that are more of this kind of theoretical or historical bent than policy stuff. And so we've resurrected those from the old publications. So many uh, libertarians find themselves talking mostly about economics. As you and I have talked before, one of the aims is to broaden the discussion of libertarianism back to more foundational stuff, moral claims often. Right. Free market economics is crucial to libertarianism and crucial to the libertarian way of approaching policy and understanding the world. But there's a lot more to libertarianism than economics, natural rights and morality and the role of the state and issues that aren't just the marketplace. And so it's important to talk about those things and they allow us to also have kind of a way to understand the free market economics as well. One great libertarian thinker who hasn't written nearly as much as he should, George Smith, always says that we think of libertarianism as being based on economics, but really free market economics only goes back about three centuries. And he says long before that was the struggle for religious toleration, which is the struggle for freedom of thought. And he likes to trace the fundamental ideas of libertarianism to the sorting out of the arguments for why there should be freedom of thought and freedom of religion. And George is contributing a weekly column on the history of libertarian ideas to libertarianism.org. And the first one was about religious toleration. Yes, it was about the emergence of religious toleration and how that relates to the emergence of religious rights and the right to freedom of worship. Also on the site is a blog where uh, several people are commenting sort of more on issues of the day, but from a foundational uh, libertarian perspective. You talked recently about Elizabeth Warren's now famous comments relating to productivity and uh, what you should own when you've produced wealth and uh, talk about that a little bit. Right. So Elizabeth Warren at a campaign stop in September had made the argument that the rich should pay more taxes and the reason they should pay more taxes is because they got rich by benefiting from things that society provided. Society government gave us roads and police forces and educated workers and the rich were able to build on these things and becoming rich. And so because of that, she said they have an obligation to repay those benefits by paying them forward to future generations, so paying taxes to pay for roads and education and all of that. And within that was a very interesting question in political philosophy, specifically about political obligation. 
about this question of where do these obligations come from, obligations we have to the state when the state asks us for something, what do we owe it? And those were kind of being ignored both by her and by people who championed what she'd said. And so I went in and explored more her particular theory of political obligation. So Warren's argument is that because the rich have accepted a benefit, let's say roads and police protection, they are now obligated to repay that benefit. And I think there may be some problems with that, but the next step in it that she takes is to say, and the way they repay that is to give money to the state in the form of taxes so that the state can create future benefits. And I don't quite think that works. We could analogize it to eating at a restaurant. So you, Caleb, take me out to dinner and you pay for dinner. And so now I have an obligation to repay that benefit by getting you dinner next time. But there are lots of ways that I could repay that. I could take you out to dinner somewhere else. I could cook you dinner. I could have food delivered to you. And so the same thing could be if society paid for benefits, I could repay society in a number of ways. But Warren says, no, the only way you can repay society is by giving money to government, which would be the same thing as saying, if you took me out to McDonald's and paid for my meal, then the only way that I could repay that would be to give money to McDonald's so they could give you another meal, which seems obviously wrong. So the rich could, or anyone who pays taxes, yes, you could pay it to the government and they could provide it, but it also seems perfectly reasonable that you could give that money to private schools for scholarships to provide education, or you could invent a new means of transportation that was more efficient than roads and sell that and provide it to the public. So her step from having an obligation to having an obligation to government doesn't quite hold up. David Bose, there's, of course, a 20-minute video of you offering a sort of a primer on libertarianism, as well as uh, several extended essays that you've written about the history of libertarianism and uh, a primer on it. Well, that's right. I did this 20-minute introduction, and that was traumatic. Aaron asked me for it for like two months. Uh, when are you going to do this? And trying to think, how do I introduce the idea of libertarianism in 20 minutes that will be placed permanently on a website for everybody to see? It was a challenge to try to figure out what went in there. But Hopefully I did. And there's also a one-minute sort of animated video that introduces libertarianism for people whose attention span is only one minute. And then you have all these classic videos, and there's only about four of them up uh, as we speak, but there will probably be more by the time people hear this. One of them is a Hayek lecture from 1983 about the evolution of morality. One of them is a Milton Friedman talk that I was thrilled to find because I'd been in the audience in 1990 when he delivered it. And it's about tolerance and humility and dogmatism. And it's pretty critical of the intellectual approach of Ludwig von Mises and Ayn Rand, who he regards as kind of dogmatic and intolerant as compared to himself, where he says, my philosophy is based on humility. It's based on an understanding that I don't know all the answers. And as an intellectual methodology, I put forward hypotheses and then we test them. Mises and Rand don't believe in that. So it will be controversial. I look forward to seeing some vigorous comments on the site. And that's one of the things we might point out. Unlike the Cato blog, libertarianism.org is allowing comments. So people can go watch one of these videos, read one of the essays, and then offer comments. And I assume that the comments will, will go on as a sort of extended conversation. So talk about how uh, some of the ideas that are discussed on libertarianism.org, clearly you're trying to influence people to a not just a way of thinking, but uh, also in specific circumstances, that is the issues relevant to today. How is the website relevant to, for example, this 
interesting Occupy Wall Street movement and the, the movement of the Tea Party? Well, I think it's quite relevant in providing a way to look at the issues that these groups and these people are fired up about. So the Occupy Wall Street people have a conception of the role of the state and the way that the market functions and the way that society operates. So the, the information that's on libertarianism.org will give libertarians a way of understanding the issues that Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party brings up. But I also think that if people who are part of Occupy Wall Street or part of the Tea Party were to read these materials, even if they didn't agree with them, even if they weren't converted to libertarianism, they might come away with a more nuanced understanding of the markets and government and society that would improve their ability to articulate their positions or perhaps slightly shift their positions. Now, you also go to some pains to list critiques of libertarianism. In fact, that's a, a distinct section of the website. Why is that important? That was a extremely important to me because I think that it's one thing to read a bunch of people who you agree with or people who support your own position. And that can be valuable in getting better arguments for your own position. But we can learn a lot from the people who disagree with us. And we can especially learn a lot from the people who disagree with us in very smart or interesting ways. So I put a lot of effort into building this list of critics who weren't necessarily the popular people, but had things that genuinely demand some reflection and ought to cause us to stop and wrestle with their ideas. And I think that we can learn a lot and become much more effective advocates of libertarianism by understanding the most powerful critics. So over the uh, the coming months and years as this website grows and uh, you exploit what's called the Jim Turney collection, these tapes that uh, he's graciously allowed Cato to use, what should we expect to see in the coming months? More from pretty much every big libertarian name in the last 30 years you can think of. So we've got more Hayek, we've got more Friedman, more Rothbard, we've got Roy Childs, we have some Mises, though that may only be audio. Pretty much anyone who was a name, we are likely to have new and interesting stuff from. Let me say three things I think the site might do. If there's somebody you want to introduce to libertarianism, friend or relative, I think you can send them the introductory page on the site where hopefully the one-minute video or the 20-minute talk would get them into the ideas and then if they want to explore, there's all sorts of additional things there. If you're sort of a long-time libertarian, then you ought to be fascinated to see these never-before-seen videos of Hayek and Friedman and so on. And if you're a libertarian scholar or an aspiring scholar, then some of these videos are going to be things that will have ideas maybe you'd never heard Friedman talk about, uh, Israel Kirzner, Earl Ravenel, other people that are on there. But also the reading list. If you took the four reading lists that Aaron put together, introductory books, principles of libertarianism, history of liberty, and then critics of libertarianism, you'd have a pretty good graduate course in political theory by the time you read all those books. All right. That will be the last word. David Bowes, Executive Vice President at the Cato Institute and Aaron Ross Powell, editor of libertarianism.org. You can, of course, learn more about the project just by going to the website and learn more about uh, public policy at our website, cato.org. The U.S. dollar's status as the world reserve currency has been called the exorbitant privilege. But investment banker and writer Louis Lehrman argues that the U.S. dollar's status has become a huge burden that continues to wreak damage to civil society. He spoke at a Cato Institute New York City seminar held in October. 
It was after the catastrophe of World War I, just a short while ago, that the system of official reserve currencies was first adopted by the great powers in order to suppress the classical pre-war gold standard. The new system was known as the gold exchange standard, a perverse and profoundly flawed corruption of the true gold standard prior to World War I. Thus, during the interwar period, the pound sterling and the dollar became the official reserve currencies used to settle payments imbalances in place of gold. Equally perverse, a similar dollar-based Bretton Woods gold exchange system was adopted in 1944. Fully in effect, but a bit more than two decades. Now, after Nixon's destruction of the last vestige of nominal convertibility of the US dollar in 1971 came the much heralded floating pegged exchange rate arrangements which envelop the world to this very day. The key financial point is that both the Bretton Woods system and its successor, the world paper dollar standard, have created excess demand for dollar reserves in foreign central banks in the form of ever-rising US debt. Excess demand for the dollar, the dominant world currency, composing 65% of the world's currency reserves, used in 85% of commodity and currency trading, and 65% of export invoicing, even in trade in which the US is not involved. This excess demand for the dollar kept the value of the dollar higher than it would otherwise have been in world trade. Thus it was that post-war free trade leadership and the dollar's reserve currency status inadvertently made the US open market a target for foreign export machines. Using, among other strategies, undervalued currencies as their battering rams. Now, being a free trade man, I can say without any hesitation that as these countries abroad gained dollar reserves, the counterpart of these reserves they were gaining was totally ignored by Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. What was ignored was the ever-increasing foreign-held U.S. Treasury debt, the counterpart of the reserve assets which foreign central banks were accumulating. And these have grown exponentially for a generation. The reserve currency position of the dollar is known as the exorbitant privilege. But this exorbitant privilege of the world reserve currency gradually became, as it is today, an insupportable burden. For example, the dollar's official reserve currency role has eroded U.S. international competitiveness. In 1980, U.S. residents owned net investments in the rest of the world equal to about 10% of U.S. output. But by 2009, U.S. residents had become net debtors equal to about 20% of output, a full 30% swing. Meanwhile, U.S. net official monetary assets, official monetary assets minus foreign liabilities, 
declined by almost exactly the same amount, while the books of the rest of American residents, private citizens, remained in balance or showed a slight surplus. This comparison shows that the entire decline in the U.S. net investment position has been due to federal, federal borrowing from foreign monetary authorities. Thus, it is fair to say that ending the dollar's role as the chief official reserve currency, in effect since the end of World War I, is absolutely indispensable to end chronic U.S. balance of payments deficits and to restore international competitiveness. In a word, the reserve currency role of the dollar and unrestrained Federal Reserve credit policy cause manifold perverse financial effects. Above all, they permit the United States to finance its budget and its balance of payments deficits by issuing without limit its own currency. This, again, is the so-called exorbitant privilege of the dollar. And it has caused the twin deficits, the budget and balance of payments deficits, to be perennial. Two generations of the twin deficits. And these deficits will continue in the absence of profound monetary and fiscal reform. Intelligence failures are real, but fixing those failures won't necessarily fix the bad policies meant to confront threats to our safety and security. Author Paul Pilar argues that intelligence hasn't played much of a role in many of America's big foreign policy decisions. He made his case at a Cato Institute book forum in October. The book that I wrote is about intelligence and policy and how it really works, which is not the same as how it works in theory or how the perceived or common wisdom would hold that it works. It's not a memoir, although I would acknowledge it has a lot of first person for an academic press book and uh, is based on a lot of personal experience. It's based, to begin with, on the idea that of all the things that go into sound foreign and security policy of this country, surely accurate images being held of whatever situation overseas our decision makers are dealing with is one of the more important ingredients. And that ingredient has seemingly gotten a lot of attention through the years, but in a very narrow way. That way is to talk about intelligence, whether it succeeds or fails, and if it fails, to so-called reform intelligence. And that's a very narrow conception for a number of reasons I'm going to get to in just a moment. It's the foundation for a national myth. All nations have myths. We've had other ones here in the United States. And the myth in this case is that when things go awry overseas or foreign threats hitting us here, that's because we simply did not understand the situation or the threat well enough. Our decision makers were not properly informed. And if we fix the problem, which is intelligence, then in the future we won't have that problem again of bad surprises and policymakers not being well informed. The myth serves mainly the purpose of reassurance. It's nice to think that when bad things happen, woe-begone wars, terrorist attacks, you name it, that we can avoid a repetition if we find the right fix or reform. The myth's based on, at least partly on truth, we, we do have real intelligence failures, that's for sure. 
but in several ways it diverges from reality. One is the impact that intelligence really has on policy. Intelligence does a very important role in providing input mainly at the tactical and operational level every day, every week on a host of things from keeping track of the Chinese military to running down terrorists. But on the really big decisions, the things that form our opinions about how our government apparatus has performed either well or poorly. When I say big decisions, I mean major departures like going to war or major grand strategic redirections of American policy. You can look back over, and what I do in this book is look back over the last, uh, basically the Cold War period since World War II, and the influence of intelligence on those decisions has been virtually nil. And I look at a number of things, the Vietnam War decisions in the 1960s, President Reagan's redirections in the 80s, and so on. And then you've got the Iraq War decision, 2003, which is one of the two big opinion shapers about intelligence in recent years, the other, of course, being the 9-11 terrorist attack. And however much intelligence was used to sell the policy publicly of launching a war against Iraq, it had almost no role in making the decision. And I've got two or three chapters that basically are devoted to reviewing what happened there. There was no policy process at all. There was no, no meeting in the sit room, no options paper, nothing like that where the issue of whether this war was a good idea was ever in play, so there was no opportunity not only for the intelligence bureaucracy, but for the professional military, the Foreign Service, or anyone else in the bureaucracy to have an input to that decision. Now, of course, we heard an awful lot about the, the weapons of mass destruction that weren't, but as Paul Wolfowitz uh, describes it in a rare, candid moment, that was basically an issue that people could agree on as a sales device for persuading the public that the war was a good idea. The infamous estimate that we all heard so much about from the fall of 2002 was never even asked for by the administration. It was asked for by Democrats in Congress. The president, the National Security Advisor, never even read it. It included judgments like, if indeed Saddam had these feared weapons, he probably would not use them against the United States or give them to terrorists, except in one situation that is if we try to launch a war against his country and overthrow his regime, hardly a selling point for going to war. And if you look at the other issues about terrorist ties and about what the consequences of a war would be after Saddam was overthrown, the overall thrust of all of that, if you wanted to draw a conclusion from the intelligence community judgments, was not to launch the war rather than to launch it. Now, of course, in Congress and the larger public, there was a resonance with regard to this issue of feared weapons, but uh, there wasn't any more attention to what the intelligence community was really saying there than there was with the administration. According to reporting from uh, Dana Priest, who in turn was sourcing this to the staffers who kept custody of the documents, there were only six U.S. senators and, quote, a handful, unquote, of representatives who ever bothered to look at that snake-bitten estimate from 2002. Intelligence has become a kind of spectator sport in this country. We look at successes and failures not because of any real effect that they have on policy, but because they happen to involve things that are easy to score as successes or failures. So it's discrete things like election results, revolutions, nuclear tests, 
terrorist attacks, that sort of thing. Even though that you add all that up and it's only a fraction of what the intelligence community's responsibilities have to do with. And some of the most notorious instances of what are true intelligence failures, the 1973 Middle East War, the Iranian Revolution, and I've got discussions of those things in the book as well, had virtually no effect one way or another on American policy and whether it succeeded or failed. The Oregon Health Insurance Experiment offers policy scholars a real chance to see just how much expanding health coverage improves health outcomes. And the truth is, at best, mixed. Cato Institute Director of Health Policy Studies Michael Cannon talked about that experiment at a Cato Policy Forum in October. I'm going to be, try to be a little provocative by using the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment as a tool for examining a political preference that's probably shared by many, if not most, of the people in this room. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about why the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment is so important. We've touched on some of these themes. It's important because the effect that expanding health insurance has on financial security or, or health is theoretically ambiguous. And the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment is the only study to control adequately or as well as it has for other factors that may be influencing health or financial security. Robin mentioned the effect of medical care on health is questionable. Generally, I think Robin would agree, generally medical care does improve health. There are a lot of effective interventions. You get them to the right person at the right time, it'll improve health. And so that on average, the money that we're spending on medicine is probably beneficial. But beyond a certain point, giving people more medical care does not improve health. Beyond that certain point, the medical services that patients receive either have no effect on health or the helpful stuff is canceled out by the harmful stuff. And we don't know where that tipping point is, but a lot of evidence suggests that a lot of Americans are beyond that tipping point of receiving medical care beyond the point of positive returns. And the effect of expanding health insurance on health is theoretically ambiguous because we don't know how close the uninsured are to that tipping point. The low-income uninsured are probably farther than the rest because they have less access to medical care outside of health insurance. But we still don't know where that tipping point is, how far the uninsured are from it, how close health insurance will bring them to that tipping point, or whether insurance will take them beyond that tipping point. Likewise, health insurance generally improves financial security, but whether expanding Medicaid broadly improves financial security overall is also theoretically ambiguous. Again, there are factors pushing in both directions. Pushing toward greater financial security, Medicaid protects you from the risk of high out-of-pocket medical expenses. But pushing in the other direction, Medicaid discourages work and private saving. It also crowds out private health insurance and private charity. The taxes that are necessary to fund Medicaid push in the other direction as well. The consensus estimate is that every dollar of taxes imposed by the federal government for Medicaid or whatever program destroys 30 cents of economic activity. And that means there is some magical number of Medicaid enrollees when once you hit that number, you have eliminated exactly one job. Medicaid influences the broader healthcare market in its role as a purchaser. And if Medicaid is so rigid that it blocks cost-saving innovations in healthcare delivery, that too may push in the opposite direction of improving financial security. Parenthetically, we've arrived, I think, at a shortcoming of the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. It misses some of these effects that influence financial security. Kate and her colleagues compared those who enroll in Medicaid to those who don't enroll, or more precisely, those who are selected by the lottery to those who are not selected by the lottery. But to capture the effects of Medicaid taxes or Medicaid as a purchaser of medical care, you would have to compare a world with Medicaid to a world without Medicaid. And certainly, Kate and her colleagues were not able to accomplish that. They obviously couldn't do that. And so the Oregon experiment therefore only captures some of Medicaid's negative influence on financial security. We need experiments like these to see which of these factors dominate and what 
is the net effect that Medicaid has on health and financial security. We need randomization to ensure that we're capturing the effects of Medicaid and not some other variable. And now we're at the part where I'm going to get provocative. This experiment, I think, is important also because it reveals something counterintuitive about the push for universal health insurance. The Oregon Health Insurance Experiment and the fact that we're just now, for the first time, getting scientifically rigorous data on the effects of health insurance show that the push to expand health insurance coverage is not primarily about improving health or financial security. Supporters of universal health insurance don't support it because they want to improve other people's health or make them more financially secure. They support it mainly because it delivers for them some other X factor. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, consider, since it's theoretically ambiguous that whether expanding health insurance would improve health, and there have been credible studies, not as credible as the Oregon experiment, but still credible, suggesting that expanding coverage sometimes may not improve health, then if your goal were really to improve health, what would you do? You would conduct experiments. You would fund insurance expansions. You would fund hypertension vans to go into low-income neighborhoods to help low-income people measure and control their blood pressure. You would do the same thing with HIV vans. You would give higher payments to hospitals for trauma care over here. You would spend money over there to improve things that economists believe have a causal impact on health. Some of the things that Robin alluded to, things like education, income, nutrition, you would see what strategies, which of these experiments bought the most health or financial security per dollar spent, and then you would scale up those programs. But that's not what is happening. Congress passed a stimulus bill and a health care bill with lots and lots of money to promote evidence-based medicine, but they included zero funds for evidence-based policymaking. They appropriated no funds to determine whether, for example, the recent health care law's expansion of health insurance will actually improve health. Now, one might say, well, now that we have the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, we don't need to do that. The Oregon Health Insurance Experiment has established that Medicaid does improve health and financial security, case closed. And we can proceed knowing that we're promoting those goals. There are two problems with that response. One of them, it's generalizability. Even if there are gains in health and financial security here, we don't know whether expanding coverage to higher income groups will yield any gains or gains as large. So that's one problem with that response. But more fundamentally, while the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment has shown that Medicaid delivers gains in health and financial security, that doesn't defeat the point that universal health insurance coverage is about something other than those things. If anything, I think it strengthens that point. If universal coverage were really about improving health and financial security, we would look at how much Medicaid spent to deliver those benefits as 10,000 people. We would compare it to other policies, hypertension vans, and what have you, and invest in whatever delivers the most health and financial security per dollar spent. James Madison led one of the most influential and prolific lives in American history. Although sometimes overshadowed by his more celebrated contemporaries, Madison helped to shape our country as perhaps no other founder did, collaborating on the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the Bill of Rights. At an October Cato Book Forum, author Richard Brookheiser discussed his new book, James Madison. Madison had two children. His wife, Dolly, had one who became Madison's stepson. He was a man named John Payne Todd, and he became a cross to both his mother and his stepfather. But Madison's two children are much more important to us. And uh, as David said, the one we're most familiar with is the Constitution. He was called the father of the Constitution even in his own lifetime, and the title has stuck. And that's not because he got the Constitution of his dreams. Nobody did. 
everybody was disappointed. All of the authors of the Constitution lost something that they would have wanted. But he was called the father of the Constitution because he alone was a major player in every step of its evolution, of its creation, and of its ratification. In 1786, he and Alexander Hamilton essentially hijack a conference on interstate commerce in Annapolis, Maryland, and turn it into a call for a constitutional convention in Philadelphia the following year. When it meets in Philadelphia in May of 1787, Madison is the first out-of-town delegate to show up. He's, of course, a delegate from Virginia. He will speak more than any other delegate except Governor Morris and James Wilson. He attends every session of the Constitutional Convention. He posts himself in front of the head table where it's easiest to hear, and he records every motion and vote and all of the speeches that are given. His notes are by far the most complete set that we have, and historians have been mining them since they were published in 1840, four years after he died. Then after the Constitution goes out to the states, and the Constitution said it required nine of the 13 states to ratify it, he is a major player in two of the must-have states. He's the leader of the pro-Constitution forces in Virginia, which is the largest state in the nation. Virginia then includes what's now West Virginia and Kentucky. It is also the most populous state, was the most populous state, and certainly thought of itself as the most eminent state. And Madison, in arguing for the Constitution, he goes head-to-head -head with Patrick Henry, who is the most eloquent speaker in America at that time. Yet Madison beats him, and Virginia narrowly ratifies the Constitution. He's also a major player in New York, which is another must-have state because of its location. If New York does not join the Union, New England is separated from the rest of the country. And Madison's role there is to collaborate with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay in a propaganda campaign for the Constitution. It's a series of newspaper essays. New York City has five newspapers at that time, and Hamilton arranges for their essays to run in each of the five serially. A modern op-ed piece is about 750 words. The papers that they wrote were 2,000 words. They were producing them at a rate of four a week. It was a grueling, grueling pace. And it was made worse by the fact that Jay got sick early on in the process and only writes five of these essays. So the burden falls on Hamilton and Madison. Hamilton writes 51. Madison writes 29. But many of the most famous are Madison's. And of course, this is the Federalist Papers. And then after the Constitution is ratified in the fall of 1788, Madison runs for a seat in the first Congress in February of 1789. He is elected, and he makes it his business to see that a Bill of Rights is written and passed by the first Congress. He gets the House to do this. The House prods the Senate to act, and then amendments go out to the country. This is done to satisfy the critics of the Constitution. It was the main objection that people had, that the Constitution, as it left Philadelphia, had no Bill of Rights. 
Madison comes around to supporting a Bill of Rights because Baptists in Virginia are telling him they need one, and he is a lifelong supporter of religious liberty. Perhaps the first issue he ever took up as a young man in his early 20s was the persecution of Virginia's Baptists by the established colonial Anglican Church. This enraged James Madison. He fought religious persecution all his life, and the Baptists knew that. They knew he was their friend. So when they're unhappy about the lack of a Bill of Rights, they let him know it, and he knows they are unhappy. He also responds to his best friend in the world, who's Thomas Jefferson, who's on the sidelines of this whole fight. He's in Paris in the late 1780s as our ambassador to France. But Madison keeps him briefed and informed. And Jefferson's letters back to Madison all have the same shape. They're a combination of applause and encouragement, but also saying the one thing you've left out is a Bill of Rights. And he says this over and over again. A Bill of Rights is something that every people deserves from its government. And I wonder if by letter five or six, Madison might have been gritting his teeth when he comes to this Bill of Rights paragraph, because here he's been in the trenches, and Jefferson is over in Paris just giving him this advice. But he comes around, and he sees that a Bill of Rights will have a teaching function. It's not the word he uses, but he says that having it there in paper in black and white will cause people to take these rights seriously, and it will affect their thinking, and it will affect their behavior. So therefore, it's probably a good idea to have one. And so he makes it an item on the agenda of the first Congress. Twelve amendments go out to the states. The first one, the original First Amendment, has to do with the size of congressional districts, and it never passes. The original Second Amendment has to do with congressional pay, and that doesn't ratify until 1992. It's the longest ratification process that any amendment has had so far. But the original amendments 3 through 12 are ratified fairly rapidly, so they become amendments 1 through 10. And the fact that there's another famous set of 10 laws makes Madison, in effect, the secular Moses of the Bill of Rights. There are many narratives about what caused the financial crisis and recession, but they typically boil down to either too much or too little regulation. John Allison, the former CEO of BB&T, has a slightly different idea about what caused the financial crisis. He blames altruism. He argues that a more rigorous concept of self-ownership sets the path forward. Allison spoke at the Cato Club 200 retreat in September. The real causes of the financial crisis are philosophical, and the real cures are philosophical, and our battle is fundamentally philosophical. The real causes of the financial crisis are a combination of altruism and pragmatism. Altruism literally means otherism. It basically says that everybody else is more important than you are, and it's, as interpreted by liberals, that means that society is important and individuals are not important. Altruism is not about benevolence. It's a very fundamental kind of worldview where others are more important. Where did the idea that everybody has a right to a house come from? Provided by who? Everybody has a right to free medical care. Provided by who? 
You know, my right to free medical care is my right to imprison a doctor to provide me with that care or to imprison somebody else to pay for that doctor. That is exactly the opposite of the American concept of rights. In the American concept of rights, each of us has the moral right to what we produce, what we create, but we don't have the right to what other people produce and what other people create. Interestingly enough, while businesses can pay lip service to altruism, they can do the politically correct things, businesses really can't be altruistic in a globally competitive environment. So the default position, the default philosophy of business is pragmatism. In fact, we teach pragmatism in our graduate business schools. And what's the, the rule in pragmatism? Do what works. Here's the problem. Lots of things work in the short term that are incredibly destructive in the long term. Affordable housing, subprime lending work for a long period of time and did incredible economic damage. The fundamental problem with pragmatism is you can't be rational and be a pragmatist because rationality demands a long-term perspective. You can't have integrity and be a pragmatist because integrity is acting consistent with principles. That's why you've seen so many violations of integrity in business and certainly, of course, in politics. By the way, that's an interesting issue for us. When I think of Cato, I think of an organization that's fundamentally in the business of defending the principles that underlie a free society. We can't get from A to Z without going from A to D, but we need to be very careful, at least I feel I need to be very careful, not ever accepting D as the answer. Because eventually, D won't work, and we're the advocates of Z. We're, at, we're the advocates of the principles that underlie free society. The combination of altruism and pragmatism leads to something I call the free lunch mentality. Take the last presidential election, Neither candidate proposed any serious solution to Medicare or Social Security, and if they had it, they wouldn't have been elected, right? That free lunch mentality leads to a lack of personal responsibility, and the lack of personal responsibility is ultimately the death of democracies. And our battle, in a certain fundamental sense, is really about personal responsibility. The Founding Fathers talked about the tyranny of the majority, and they were talking about the abuse of individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But they also knew that when 51% of the people figured out they could vote a free lunch from 49%, pretty soon 60% wanted a free lunch from 40%, and 70% wanted a free lunch from 30%, and then the 30% quit. Now, just like the cause is philosophical, so is the cure. And the cure is fundamental and essential. And it is expressed by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's moral right to their own life. Each individual's moral right to the pursuit of their personal happiness. Each individual's moral right to the product of their own labor. If they produce a lot, they get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever they want to on whatever terms they want to. That moral prerogative demands personal responsibility because there is no free lunch. It also demands and rewards rationality. It demands and rewards self-discipline. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As libertarians, many of us think about liberty, and liberty is incredibly important. But it's important to understand why liberty is important. And I think it's different than some people really get. The reason that liberty is important, it is necessary for us as human beings to think effectively. Everything that's alive has a method of staying alive. A lion has claws to hunt with, a deer has speed to avoid the hunter. We have the capacity to think. And our capacity to think is literally our only means of survival, success, and happiness. There are no free lunches, there are no shortcuts. In a fundamental sense, there's only one true natural resource, that's the human mind. You know, 10,000 years ago, oil was useless to a man. Today, oil is useless to a deer. Somebody invented oil. 
Fifteen years ago, telecommunications went through big, thick cables made out of copper that's expensive and rare. Today, telecommunications go through fiber optics that's made out of silicon, that's made out of sand, the most common material on the Earth's surface. Somebody invented fiber optics. In fact, if you think about it, all human progress, by definition, is based on creativity. And creativity is ultimately an act of thinking. Creativity allows us to have improvements. And if you think about creativity, it's always different. But somebody to do something better must be different. Creativity is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. That's why socialist systems never make any significant contribution to human progress. It's why entrepreneurs are so important. I know we got a lot of entrepreneurs in this room. If you think about it, all human progress is based on entrepreneurship. Because somebody has to take the ideas of science and the engineers and turn it into reality. When you prevent entrepreneurs from thinking, you destroy human progress. I reflect on that in my business experience. At BB&T, I had numerous occasions where we could have done things that would improve the quality of life for our clients, and we could have made a profit doing it, and it was against some law somewhere. Today, the regulatory destruction of entrepreneurial thinking is stunning. The banking industry is particularly powerful. At BB&T today, I guarantee you the leaders of our organization are spending at least half, if not two-thirds, of their thinking capacity and 90% of their energy dealing with regulatory problems. They don't have the thinking capacity or energy to come up with better solutions and improve the quality of life and create jobs. Now, our organization has 30,000 employees, and every 98, 9% of those employees are good people doing a good job. But the truth is, the top 100 people are the ones that matter, and maybe the top 10. And those brains of that top 100 people are basically in stop because of the regulatory attack on the industry. And that's, it's not so true in technology, but across business today, you talk to any business person, the regulatory attack is destroying the entrepreneurial process. And thinking is a source of human process. And only free people can think. If you can't pursue your own thinking process, you literally cannot think effectively. It destroys your thinking process. So liberty is necessary for human survival and well-being because of our nature as independent thinking beings. Interesting enough, as powerful as liberty is, and that's what libertarians tend to focus on, the real powerful statement of the Declaration of Independence is the pursuit of happiness. That was a world-changing idea. Before Jefferson, before the thinkers of the Enlightenment, everybody existed for somebody else's good. The good of the king, good of the state, the good of the church. Nobody existed for their own good. What Jefferson said is that each one of us has the moral right to the pursuit of our personal happiness. We're not guaranteed success in that pursuit, but we have that right. And that is the idea that changed the world. Created the most successful society in history and the most benevolent. When people have the right to their own life, they're naturally nicer to other people. In socialist and communist societies, at the end of the day, everybody ends up hating each other because everybody is a slave to everybody else. Let's talk a little bit about the pursuit of happiness. What does that really mean? At a concrete level, really, happiness is about us achieving goals that we personally value. It can be as simple as getting through college or getting that first job or getting a house or getting our kids through college or writing a really good book or defending the principles that underlie free society. It's really about the achievement of those goals. And if you think about the goals worth achieving, they're hard work, right? There's a blood, sweat, and tears in that pursuit of happiness. So happiness is not about having a good time on Friday night. Nothing wrong with having a good time on Friday night. But it's about the pursuit of goals that have meaning to you personally. 
And interestingly enough, in order to pursue happiness, you have to have a sense of purpose. You have to use your thinking capacity, as I just described, to accomplish that purpose. But you also have to have the kind of self-confidence that comes from a high level of self-esteem to actually be successful against the many odds, the many barriers that you face in that pursuit. So self-esteem, in a fundamental sense, is the foundation for happiness. Sometimes, uh, by the way, people in business get confused. They think money's the end of the game. Nothing wrong with money. Money's a good thing. However, money's not an end. It can be a means to an end, but it is not an end. Happiness is the end of the game, and we are in the happiness business, in that deep Aristotelian sense. And to be happy, we have to have a high level of self-esteem. Self-esteem is a complex subject, but I want to share a few thoughts with you. First, self-esteem it fundamentally is self-confidence in your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. So you earn self-esteem by how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You cannot give your children self-esteem. Self-esteem has to be earned. Live your life with integrity. Raise your self-esteem. That's why integrity is important. Second thought about self-esteem, and when I talk to student groups, this is the most controversial and I think by far the most important thought. In order to have a high level of self-esteem, in order to pursue happiness, you must believe at a fundamental level that you're capable of being good and that you have the moral right to be happy. In order to have a high level of self-esteem, you must believe at a very deep level that you're capable of being good and you have the moral right to be happy. Unfortunately, a very commonly held belief in our society that I suspect everybody in here has some of is that as human beings, we're born bad. And the reason we're born bad is we're selfish, right? And selfish is bad. I can see Johnny in the sandbox, three or four years old, playing with his truck, having a good time, not bothering anybody. Along comes Fred. Fred would like to have Johnny's truck. Johnny doesn't want to give it to him. Discussion, debate, argument ensues. Mom dead, son of school teacher, kindergarten teacher gets involved in that discussion. And mom says, hey, Johnny, give that truck to Fred. Don't be selfish. Don't be Two great fundamental moral lessons being taught in the sandbox. First, where did Fred get the right to Johnny's truck? You want to know where our social welfare system starts? Right there in the sandbox. That's it. The battle takes place in the sandbox. Because if Fred has a right to Johnny's truck, he has a right to lots of things like medical care paid for by Johnny. What about the lesson to Johnny? And these we're all Johnnies in that this room. What's the lesson to Johnny? Don't go for what you really want. Your life is not as important as other people's life. Your life is not as important as Fred. Fred's need is more important than your life. Very profound moral lesson. It is interesting to reflect on selfishness objectively. Immutable, non-negotiable fact of reality. Everything that is alive must act in its self-interest or die. Immutable, non-negotiable fact of reality. Everything that is alive must act in its self-interest or die. A lion has to hunt or starve. A deer has to run from the hunter or be eaten. Trees shade out other trees to get sunlight. Amoeba take chemicals that other amoeba would like to have. Life is by definition self-sustaining action. Anything that's alive that does not sustain its life dies. To say that man is bad because he's selfish is the same thing as saying the sun's bad because it's hot. Gravity's bad because it holds us down. Sun should be hot. Gravity should hold us down. And as a living entity, we should act in our self-interest. The only option is death. 
It's very important that we define, however, acting in our self-interest properly because the liberals have done a great job of destroying this concept. And the way they've done it is by creating a false alternative. And here's a false alternative, to take advantage of other people or self-sacrifice. In fact, a lot of times when people talk about selfish, acting in one's rational self-interest, they talk about taking advantage of other people. Here's the irony. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. And you see that in two basic ways. First, you might fool Tom, Dick, and Harry, but pretty soon they're going to tell Jane and Sue and nobody's going to trust you. You see that in business all the time. And probably you know people you don't trust because they try to take advantage of other people. Taking advantage of other people just doesn't work practically. But there's a deeper issue. If you try to manipulate other people's consciousness, you're going to do a lot of damage to your own consciousness. In my business, I get to meet a lot of successful people. Interesting observation. I have never met anybody that I think was successful and happy that got there taking advantage of other people. Now, I've met some people that have made a lot of money that I think got there taking advantage of other people, and they're the most unhappy people I ever met. It is true that other people's consciousness exists in reality, but when we let go of the truth to deceive other people, we damage ourselves. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. How about self-sacrifice? How about self? That's our moral code in our society, right? We ought to all self-sacrifice. I want to ask this question to students, but I'd ask you to ask it to, for yourself and for do you, what do you tell your own children? Do you have as much right to your own life as anybody else has to their life? Do you have as much right to your own life as anybody else has to their life? Of course you do. Why would you believe anything different than that? Taking advantage of other people and self-sacrifice, neither one make any sense. But there is a proper moral code. And the proper moral code is expressed by the trader principle. Fundamental in life, we're traders. We trade value for value. We get better together. In our business, we help our clients achieve economic success and financial security. Let's make a profit doing it. We're getting better together. In fact, life is about creating win-win relationships. There are only two stable relationship conditions in life, win-win and lose-lose. Whenever you get greedy and you set up a, a win-lose, and we see that sometimes with spousal relationships, your partner will get bitter and you'll end up in a lose-lose. Whenever you get self-sacrificial and you set up a, a lose-win, you'll get bitter and you end up in a lose-lose relationship. In any meaningful relationship in your life, you should ask, what's in it for me? That is a fundamentally fair, objective question. But you should also ask, what's in it for them? Because if there's nothing in it for them, at the end of the day, there'll be nothing in it for you. And of course, it is in your rational self-interest to help the people you care about, that you value, because you value those people. Your family, your friends, the people you work with, they're valuable to you. In fact, if you love your children, helping your children is not a sacrifice. In fact, love is the ultimate expression of selfishness. You don't believe that? I tell the story I tell the students. You're getting ready to get married obviously a really big event in your life. Your future spouse comes up to you and says, Honey, I'm so excited about marrying you. This is the biggest self-sacrifice I've ever made. <laughs> Not exactly what you want to hear, right? I believe it is in my rational self-interest to support United Way. United Way is an umbrella charity organization that does a lot of good in the community. It does it very efficiently. I wouldn't want to live in the kind of community that would exist if there were no United Way, and I certainly wouldn't want my children to live in that kind of community. Here's a challenge. What would really be required for you to act in your rational self-interest, and what would be the consequences? First thing, 
A lot of people think about selfish with two basic areas. One, they think about taking advantage of other people. And secondly, they see it as this kind of tunnel vision. You see these narcissist people, and that's the ones that, that get attacked. That's not it. In order to be selfish, you first have to hold a context. You have to ask yourself, what kind of world would I like to live in, right? And what would I enjoy doing, even though it might be hard work, what would I enjoy doing helping create that kind of world? What kind of world would I like to live in, and what would I enjoy doing to help create that kind of world? And what would that require? That you have a sense of purpose, that you take care of your body, you eat properly, you exercise, you take care of your mind, you learn, grow, you work hard at creating healthy human relationships because that's very important to being happy as a human being. It's interesting to reflect on that. How many people actually are selfish in that regard? How many people ask that question? What kind of world would I like to live in? What would I enjoy doing creating that world? What purpose would work for me? Do I take care of my mind? Do I take care of my body? Do I work on creating healthy human relationships? And by the way, if, the, if everybody acted that way, wouldn't 95% of the problems of the world go away? The reason this is important, the attack on liberty really is an attack on selfishness. It's basically saying people don't have a right to their own life. And I would disagree with that. In fact, they, most people say that the problems in the world because people are too selfish, and they use all kinds of examples. I had a brother-in-law, drank 24 beers a day, got cirrhosis of the liver, drank 24 years a day, died. People say he's selfish. Well, I say no, he was self-destructive. Bernie Madoff stole from his family and friends for 30 years. Can you imagine getting up every morning and having stolen from the people, most valuable people in your life? The guy admitted the best day in his life was when he went to jail. People say Bernie Madoff was, was selfish. No, that's not selfish. That's self-destructive. By the way, this is a pretty important issue with free market economists. They've got this wrong definition of selfishness as kind of doing what you want to do. That's not selfish. Selfishness requires a certain kind of discipline. It's about the pursuit of purposes, and it's about the pursuit of happiness. And, and if we're not willing to defend that people should act in their rational self-interest properly understood, we fundamentally cannot defend a free society. One last thought about uh, self-esteem. In the real world, self-esteem primarily comes from romantic love and productive work. I am not an expert on romantic love. It's probably a survival of species need, but I do have one insight. If you're looking for somebody to make you happy, if you expect your spouse to make you happy, you're guaranteed to fail. Nobody else can make you happy. And there are lots of people that would like to share your happiness. Productive work, and I use productive work in the broadest context. Raising children, very productive work. For everybody in this room, and the vast majority of people on this planet, your work, however you define it to be, is the single biggest driver of self-esteem. Because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. That is what makes work important. And there happens to be a gigantic social implication of that concept. Take a construction worker. A bricklayer has a hard, tough life. Hard, tough life. Reminds me of my granddad. Hard, tough life. But he's successful in that life. He, he and his wife raise their children. Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company. Maybe not. He has a hard, hard life, but he gets something really precious from that work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may be better off materially, but he loses something very precious. He loses his self-esteem. 
You know, the liberal sales pitch is basically around security. And that's what they talk about. And security matters in the United States. But this is not the land of security. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is a land of opportunity. The opportunity to be great, the opportunity to fail and try again, but most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live his life on his own terms, to pursue his personal happiness as a free man. That is the American sense of life. That is what's made America great, and that's really about what we are defending. This holiday season, give your family, friends, and even yourself a gift from the Cato Institute. The Cato online store has everything you need, clothing, books, one-of-a-kind publications, Cato Audio, of course, and more. It's a chance to find a terrific present and to share your support for the Cato Institute. Visit catostore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year.